Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Well, as we announced some time back, uh, our next sermon series is going to take us through the Gospel of Luke. And so grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and in case you use uh, one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 855. I've been looking forward to going through Luke uh, for some time now, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, our faith is grounded in who Jesus is and what he has done, and so there's nothing better we could spend our time studying uh, than the life and ministry of Jesus. But secondly, I want us to study Luke because I'm convinced that we are in need of fine-tuning. You see, as, as I continue through life and I watch what's happening in our world, uh, I, I see this interesting phenomenon. And the, the, the phenomenon is that everybody thinks they know who Jesus is. Right? Everybody is convinced that they know who Jesus is, whether they're a, a believer or an unbeliever whether they are young or old, uh, whether they are conservative or liberal, uh, whether they're educated or uneducated, everybody thinks they know who Jesus is. And amazingly, everybody is convinced that Jesus agrees with them on exactly how they see things in the world. It's the strangest thing. And yet, when we really stop and take time to look, Jesus consistently says and does things that defy our expectations and that challenge our preconceived notions about who he is and what he's all about. And so I can't think of a better way to spend what's probably going to take a little over the next year uh, than having a fresh encounter uh, with the life and ministry of Jesus as it is recorded for us in the book of Luke. Now, of course, Luke begins with the buildup to Jesus' birth, which makes the first section of this book an ideal passage for our Advent series this year as we prepare to celebrate his birth at Christmas. Now, Advent does not start, despite how things may look up here, Advent does not start until next week. We will not be singing Christmas songs until then. Uh, however, it's going to take five weeks for us to get to the birth story uh, in time, able, able to do it in time for Christmas. So we needed to go ahead and start this week. And so without further ado, let's get into the gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so as we get started this morning, Luke begins with an introduction that explains what this book is all about. And in these first four verses, there are three main points that we need to establish that will set us up for everything that follows. And so first of all, the main point of this book is found in the reference at the end of verse 1 to the things that have been accomplished among us. You see, the word accomplished actually carries uh, the idea of fulfillment. 
And so Luke is writing an account of the things that have been fulfilled, come to fulfillment in his lifetime. Secondly, while he acknowledges that many others have compiled similar stories uh, themselves, Luke says that it seemed good to him to research and to write an account specifically for the recipient of this book, who is a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, we don't really know who Theophilus was, but based on what we see here, it would appear that Theophilus was a fellow believer uh, who was wealthy and perhaps uh, quite influential as well. And we can assume that this is the case because the phrase, most excellent, is a way of referring to someone who is in a position of authority, uh, someone who commands respect. And because this whole book, along with the book of Acts, uh, was written specifically for him. See, in the ancient world, a writing project, the, the scope of Luke and then the book of Acts, was a major, major undertaking uh, for just one person. And so whoever Theophilus was, he was clearly important. Then we understand that he was probably a believer because Luke says in verse 4 that the purpose of him writing this is to confirm the certainty of the things Theophilus has been taught. Right? So Theophilus knows about Jesus. Presumably he's come to be a believer. And Luke has researched and compiled this account of Jesus' life and ministry so that Theophilus can be confident that what he's been taught is true. And then finally, we should recognize from verse 2 that the details of this story come just as those from, from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Right? Luke wants Theophilus to know that he has taken no liberties in this writing. Right? There, there's no poetic license here. This story is nothing more and nothing less than the apostles and other eyewitnesses uh, have, have testified to through their preaching and teaching about the life and ministry of Jesus. And so this is a claim to historical accuracy. This book is a factual record of what happened and how it happened. Right, so Luke has spent a long time following the facts, researching and interviewing eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry so that he can write an accurate account for the spiritual well-being of, of his friend Theophilus. And we'll get into the story itself as we pick up again beginning in verse 5. Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So as we pick up in verse 5, we see that the story of Luke begins in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Right, so 400 years have gone by since the Lord last spoke to his people through the prophet Malachi. And as you might expect, a lot has happened in that time frame, which we uh, frequently refer to as the intertestamental period. Right, lots of interesting events and developments took place during the intertestamental period that set the stage for the world as we find it in the New Testament, which is considerably different from the world as we left it, at the end of the Old Testament. And when we left off in Malachi, 
uh, the Jews were under the rule of the Persian Empire. But around 75 years or so after Malachi, Alexander the Great overthrew the Persians, and he established his famous uh, empire uh, that ruled the world for some time, the Macedonians. And the most enduring effect that Alexander had for our purposes was that Greek became the common language across the ancient world, which is why the New Testament was written in Greek. But after Alexander's death, his empire was divided between four of his top generals. And because of that division, along with a combination of some other factors, the Jews were actually able to revolt for a season and gain independence for themselves for right at 100 years until the Romans came to power and established one of the greatest empires in human history. And as the Romans established local government throughout the empire, they appointed a man named Herod I, often referred to as Herod the Great, to be king over the region of Judea, which is where Israel was. Now, as a whole, the Jews rejected Herod uh, and his family because they were not descendants of David. In fact, they were not truly Jewish at all. And so they saw him as having no right to sit on a throne over them. And this, in turn, made Herod incredibly paranoid, and he was constantly on the lookout for plots to overthrow his rule. And he was known to act violently when he suspected that a plot was taking place. There were other significant developments in the intertestamental period that that set the stage for the New Testament as we find it, but for time's sake, we're going to deal with those as they come up in the story. But it's during the reign of Herod the Great that our story begins, and as the lights come on, so to speak, we're introduced to a priest by the name of Zechariah. Luke tells us that Zechariah belongs to the priestly division of Abijah. So the priesthood was, was divided into 24 different divisions, and each division was responsible for ministering at the temple for one week, twice a year, and then at all the major festivals throughout the year. Additionally, we see that Zechariah has a wife whose name is Elizabeth, who also comes from a priestly family, and together Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this is not to say that they were perfect or sinless in any way, but but it's used by Luke to describe Zechariah and Elizabeth as being people who have a genuine love for the Lord, which is reflected in a lifestyle of faithfulness to him, which we saw is exactly what Malachi said the Lord was looking for in his people. But, But despite their faithfulness, Zechariah and Elizabeth have no children. Luke tells us in verse 7 that Elizabeth was barren. She was unable to conceive. And and beyond that, at the time our story begins, both of them are past the age of having children anyway. This would have been a cause for shame for them in the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, being childless was taken to be a sign of divine disfavor for, for whatever reason it might be. And so uh, this description does two things. First of all, it reminds us that our circumstances in life don't always reflect uh, the the genuine nature of our relationship with God, right? As the Lord works out his plans across human history, there are people who are allowed to prosper for a time, despite the fact that they reject the Lord. And then there are people who love the Lord, who can suffer in various ways. And Elizabeth and Zechariah show us this. But from a literary and theological perspective, this detail about who they were and their situation in life sets the stage for what is about to happen. 
You see, the idea of, of a couple being righteous before God and yet not having children reminds us, or it should remind us, of the story of Abraham and Sarah, or of Jacob and Rachel, or of Elkanah and Hannah, or Manoah and his wife, or any number of other people in the Old Testament who eventually experienced miraculous intervention by God at significant turning points in salvation history. And so right up front, this description of Zechariah and Elizabeth is hinting that something major is about to happen. It's going to change everything. And we begin to see this in verse 8. Luke tells us that one day, Zechariah is working his shift in the temple when the time comes for the burnt offering. So so a burnt offering would be given uh, twice every day at the temple, once in the morning and once in the evening. And it was accompanied by a priest burning incense inside the temple and the people joining in corporate prayer outside of the temple. So the honor of burning the incense inside the temple uh, was reserved for a priest once in his lifetime. You were only allowed to do this once. And statistically... Uh, there were so many priests serving that it was, it was highly unlikely that you would ever be chosen to do this in the first place. They selected the priest who would be able to do this by throwing uh, lots, similar to, to rolling dice. And so it's supposed to be by chance. And so it's a, mem- it's a momentous occasion when Zechariah is chosen randomly on this particular day to be the priest who goes inside to burn the temple, or to to burn the the incense, please don't burn the temple, to burn the incense in the temple uh, at the time of the burnt offering. Uh, But this would have been one of the highlights uh, of his priestly career. But this highlight, this unexpected honor, pales in comparison to the privilege that Zechariah is about to receive, and we'll see that as we pick up again, beginning in verse 11. It says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. He, fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah goes into the temple and at some point an angel appears to him at the altar of incense. And as, typi- as humans typically do in the Bible when they uh, encounter a, a spiritual uh, or a physical expression of the spiritual realm, Zechariah is absolutely terrified when he sees this angel. But the angel tells him not to be afraid because this visitation is in answer to his prayer. And he reveals that Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son whose name will be John. This is not going to be just any child. This is going to be a child who impacts the world, as many will rejoice at his birth. Now, there are three aspects of this child that the angel describes that are significant for understanding who he will be. 
And so first of all, the angel says that he will be great before the Lord, which is to say that the Lord is going to use him in a mighty way for his own purposes. Secondly, the angel instructs Zechariah that the child must not drink wine or strong drink. Right? And he says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now this language partly reflects the language that's used in the Old Testament to refer to a Nazarite, who is somebody whose entire life is dedicated completely to serving the Lord. And so from this, we understand that this son, Zechariah and Elizabeth is going to have, is going to be set apart completely for the Lord and his purposes. And then finally, we see starting in verse 16 that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now this should sound very familiar to you because it is essentially a direct quote from how Malachi described the messenger that the Lord was going to send to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And what all this adds up to is that Zechariah's son is going to be that messenger. This is him. And so to say that this is the, the greatest day of Zechariah's life is probably an understatement. That this is, this is incredible. And in fact, as we move into verse 18, we're going to see that it's so good, it's actually impossible for Zechariah to believe. And so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to you, to, to, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the time of service was ended, he went, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And so after receiving a once-in-a-lifetime honor as priest, Zechariah has been told that he is going to have a son, and not just any son, right? but, but, but the messenger promised to Malachi. And so you have to think about it. To, to go from being shamed for being childless to having the high honor of being the father of the long-promised and long-waited messenger of the Messiah, uh, that's a pretty sharp U-turn. Right, this is all probably a lot for Zechariah to take in in 45 seconds, or however long it took for the angel to explain this to him. And not only that, uh, but we can't forget that Zechariah and, and Elizabeth are old at this point, and not exactly in a position, humanly speaking, to have a child. And so in the moment, Zechariah finds this hard to believe, and he asks the angel for a sign for how he can know that this is true. Now in response, the angel reveals his identity as Gabriel, 
who stands in the presence of God in heaven, and he seems to be of the opinion that if an angel appears to you in the temple, that should probably be evidence enough for you to believe what he has to say. But since Zechariah questions the divine message and asks for a sign, he gives him one. He says in verse 20 that Zechariah will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. And he insists that they will be fulfilled at their appointed time. Now, meanwhile, the people outside the temple have finished praying, and, and they're kind of wondering what's, what's going on with Zechariah inside. He's taking uh, an unusually long time. When Zechariah finally comes out, true to the angel's words, he is unable to talk. And the people realize that he has seen a vision in the temple. And Luke says that he keeps trying to, to sign to the people to explain, you know, what's going on and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just not working. He, he remains silent. And so when the week of his service is over, he packs things up and he goes back home. What else are you going to do? But then in verse 24, we see the fulfillment of the angel's promise. Sometime later, Elizabeth does conceive a child. Luke says that she keeps herself hidden for five months, which is a very interesting detail that nobody knows what that's about. Why does she hide herself for so long? But she does, uh, and, and she worships the Lord for taking away the reproach of her childlessness. So this is how the story of Luke begins. So as, as we get into the story of Luke this morning, we see that we are reading a carefully researched account of how God's promise of salvation for his people has been fulfilled. And so over the next year, we are going to see over and over again how God's promises in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And when it comes to how this passage should apply to our lives today, As we read this, we should be reminded that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Through Malachi, the Lord promised to send a messenger who would prepare his people for the coming Messiah, and now he is doing that. Through Gabriel, God promises that Zechariah and Elizabeth will be the parents of that messenger, and now they are. And he also promises that because Zechariah didn't believe the second promise, he will be mute and unable to speak until the time comes for these promises to be fulfillment. And now he is. Three promises of varying levels of importance and varying levels of, of time find fulfillment here in this first section of the story. We are reminded that God always keeps his promises. And that is so important for us to see because as Christians, we live by faith in God's promises. Despite what we may perceive with our senses, despite what this world may tell us is true, we navigate life by by believing uh, God's word. And, And sometimes that's hard, especially when what we experience in life doesn't match up with what we expect or what we think we should be able to expect. But this is a a challenge that God's people have faced in every age. As we were going through Malachi, uh, I couldn't help but think ahead to where we were going as we got into the Gospel of Luke, and and it occurred to me that 400 years is a really long time to wait. The people who received the promise through Malachi didn't live to see the fulfillment. 
and neither did their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren or their great-great-grandchildren or however many more generations you can fit into a 400-year period. And I'm sure that there were a lot of times in that period where, where God's people questioned whether God's promises were really true and whether or not he would ever actually come through on them. And in the same way, we often come to points in life where, where we know we've been given a promise by God. We, we see it in his word, and yet the fulfillment appears nowhere in sight. But church, God always keeps his promises. We can trust in his word, and we see that here this morning. And I hope that this encourages us to believe and to rest in God's word throughout all of the ups and downs of our life. But perhaps you're, you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. If that's the case, I can't think of any better time for you to be here uh, than as we embark on a fresh study of the life and ministry of Jesus. I hope you will stick around with us. But I'd like to offer you the opportunity to embrace God's promise for yourself this morning. You see, where this, this whole thing is going meets us at the point of our greatest need. Because while we are all sinners who have rebelled against God, and deserve to receive his righteous judgment, the Bible tells us that God sent Jesus into the world to be a sacrifice for our sin in our place so that we can be forgiven of our sin by repenting of it and placing all of our faith in what he has done to save us. And when we do that, God gives us new life spiritually, and he promises to lead us through this life as he accomplishes all of his plans across the span of human history. And I invite you this morning to get in on that by believing God's word. When we read the scriptures, we are reading the word of God. And the word of God is true. It is something that we can stake our lives on. And so this morning, may we be individuals and a church who believe God's promises as they're found in his word. Let's pray together.